0: Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of death and the mention of sexual activity. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Petri dropped the chunk of stolen marble to the ground. It had been an exhausting and treacherous climb out of the quarry. Even worse than that, he was now lost. He tried to follow the directions that his boss Cyril had given him, but the hills turned out to be more confusing than he expected. Petri wasn't going to give up, though. If they could sell this marble, it would feed his family for an entire year. He was getting paid a premium because he was the only stonecutter who would dare go near Mount Pentelicus and its caves. Petri had heard the tales. The caves were supposed to be haunted, but he didn't care. A job was a job. Besides, the hard part was done. He had excavated the block from the quarry. Now he just needed to get it to Cyril. The only problem was he couldn't find him. Thankfully, at that moment, Petri spotted some movement in a nearby grove of pine trees. That must be him, he thought. Petri shouted, but there was no answer. Petri rolled his eyes. Classic Cyril. He never heard anything. Petri would have to chase after him, so he raced off into the pine trees. But once there, he didn't find his friend. He found something else. It was an immense archway of stone that led into the hillside. This must have been the cave that everyone was scared of. Petri, on the other hand, didn't feel anything. To him, it was just beautiful. Just then, he saw a flash of movement inside. He called out to Cyril again. But there was still no answer. Many people would have turned back, but Petri strolled inside. He was determined to get his payday. A short distance in, he reached a crossroads where a spider web of tunnels branched out in many directions. Petri yelled again, but there was no answer. Instead, he heard a creepy melody coming from one of the passages. It sounded almost like a pan flute. Maybe it was Cyril's ringtone, but Petri didn't want to risk getting lost. He decided to return to the entrance to wait for his boss. But when he turned back, His heart nearly stopped. Something was blocking the mouth of the tunnel. It seemed to have the torso of a man and the legs of an enormous goat. For the first time, Petri was scared. He screamed and tried to run, but the creature charged. The animal's teeth clamped down on his arm and began pulling him deeper into the cave. Welcome to Haunted Places, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to an ancient cave in the hills outside of Athens, Greece. Develis Cave is a place where strange creatures appear in the night, where time moves differently, and the laws of physics no longer apply. We'll learn the mystical history behind this age-old grotto and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Coming up we descend into the labyrinthine tunnels
1: of the Develis Cave. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
0: Athens, Greece is known for its ancient ruins. There's the Acropolis, the Parthenon, and countless others. With so many historic sites, it's understandable that most people have never heard of one of the most notorious haunted places in Greece, Mount Pentelicus. The Craggy Peak was famous for its marble. Now its claim to fame is the network of subterranean caverns known as Davelis Cave. The cave has been used for over 2,000 years. The ancient Greeks saw it as a place of worship, Centuries later, bandits used the cave to hide their treasure. And in recent decades, the Greek government used it for some sort of classified operation. This landmark holds thousands of years of secrets. Though many have tried to uncover the truth behind them, we're still left with questions. Regardless of the era, one thing remains true about Develis. This cave attracts evil. Sandor dragged his feet as he and his wife arrived at the Parthenon for their weekly offering. He felt like a fraud. He didn't believe in the gods. He saw it as a big scam. Selisa, on the other hand, was a devout follower. She loved the deities and enjoyed donating fruit and coins to the temple. After bowing at the door, they were permitted into the inner sanctum. There, in a cloud of blue smoke, stood a 40-foot-tall statue of Athena. As if the height wasn't impressive enough, suddenly beams of light shot from the statue's eyes and a booming voice echoed from the stone body. Sandor glanced over at his wife. Her eyes were wet with tears. Was she really buying this? Sandor bit his tongue and bowed with the worshippers. In fact, he said a prayer to Athena, if she existed, to make him believe. At the very least, it might help clear his thoughts. When Selisa finished her devotions, Sandor followed her outside the temple. As she dabbed the tears from her cheeks, she asked if he felt any differently than the last time. Sandor shook his head. He explained all the tricks they had just witnessed. The blue smoke was simply incense mixed with minerals. The lights from Athena's eyes were torches magnified through glass lenses. And the booming voice was just a man speaking through a wooden cone. Selesa sighed she asked Sander why he was so cynical. Sander admitted that he wanted to believe. He just couldn't help it if he wasn't impressed by cheap theatrics. At that, Salisa's face turned red. She told him she'd see him later. She was going to walk home, alone. As his wife disappeared into the city, Sander cursed and kicked a stone at his foot. Why did he have to open his mouth? Couldn't he just keep his skepticism to himself? Or better yet, why couldn't the gods make him believe like he asked? As Sandra stood in the shadow of the Parthenon, a strange old man with a donkey approached him. The man wore a filthy goatskin over his shoulders. His hands were dirty, and he smelled of dung. He told Sandra he couldn't help but overhear the previous conversation. He admitted that he, too, felt nothing when he visited the temples in Athens. But he knew a place that could make him believe once and for all. He told Sandor to follow him. Sandor paused. He worried that perhaps the man was trying to lead him out into the wilderness to rob him. But as the old man shrugged and started to amble away, Sandor realized he had to take a chance. This might be his chance to finally see the gods, as his wife did. Sandor hustled after the man and told him to lead the way, The man gestured for Sandor to get on the donkey, and they rode together into the hills north of Athens. The further they traveled from the city, the more Sandor regretted his decision. He felt ill from the man's stench, and his back was starting to ache from the rough ride. Just as Sandor was about to give up and walk back to the city, they arrived at a towering archway cut into the hillside. The man informed Sandor that he was the priest here, He found the natural setting of the cave more conducive to prayer. Up here, it was impossible not to feel close to the gods. Sandor followed the man into the cave. It was enormous, almost the size of the Parthenon. At the back of the cavern was a curtain hanging over a tunnel entrance. Beyond the curtain, Sandor could hear singing. When Sandor asked what was beyond the curtain, the man's eyes grew two sizes larger, He told Sandor not to go behind the curtain under any circumstances. He didn't even go back there. There were things that mortals weren't supposed to see. The priest gestured for Sandor to take a seat so they would pray together. He was sure that the peaceful surroundings would encourage him to believe. But as Sandor watched the priest hum and chant, he could only think of one thing, the curtain and what lay beyond it. Whatever was there would likely be his ticket to faith. Sandor waited for the man to close his eyes in prayer. At that moment, he bolted towards the curtain tunnel. As he reached it, he heard a shout. He turned and saw the priest running after him, yelling for him to stop. Sandor ignored him and ducked under the curtain. On the other side of the curtain, there was a tunnel that sloped down into the earth. The singing seemed to be magnified here. But Sandor couldn't understand the words. It was a mixture of screams and guttural noises, like a pagan language from centuries before. Sandor followed the sounds into a new chamber, but there was nobody there. The room was completely empty, with a wide pool of black water in the center. Sandor's shoulders slumped. Even here, there was nothing to make him believe. He'd just have to return to his wife and bite his tongue. Suddenly, his blood went cold. Something strange was happening. The water began rising upwards against gravity. It started to collect in a pool on the ceiling. After a moment, the water coalesced into a giant face. But it wasn't that of a normal human. It had eyes as big as saucers and horns like a goat. Sander nearly choked when it began to speak. It told Sander if he wanted to believe, now was his chance. He should step into the dark pool. Sander wanted to run, but his body was paralyzed. He was being pulled into the eerie liquid. He realized this couldn't be explained away as a simple trick. This was real. As his body was pulled into the primordial soup, he realized he should have been more careful about wanting to believe. He now knew that the gods were real, but he would never have a chance to tell his wife. He'd never have the chance to do anything ever again. Archaeologists estimate that sometime around the fifth century BCE, The ancient greeks began to use develis cave as a shrine to the mythical creature pan usually depicted as half man half goat pan was considered to be unpredictable and wild he existed as a counterpoint to most of the greek gods and mythical creatures who represented order and society he was the darkness to their light he was the yin to their yang pan was also known to possess a frightening voice that he used to sow fear among mortals His name is actually the origin of the modern English word, panic, which is appropriate for today's story, considering that many who enter Devella's cave are soon filled with that exact emotion. Coming up, the cave becomes home to another evil creature, an outlaw.
2: Hi listeners, it's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own. Or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story.
0: Centuries after, the Greek worshipers of Pan died off the cave at Mount Pentelicus became home to Christian hermits. During that time, a Byzantine church was built on the site. It's unknown exactly when or why the Christians abandoned the church, but some say they may have been scared away, like so many others. But the cave didn't stay empty for long. Sometime in the 1800s, it became home to its most famous resident and its namesake, a Greek bandit named Christos Natsios. He went by a nickname, Davellus. Over the years, much of Christos' life has been obscured by legends and anecdotes. Some say he hid at Develis cave after killing a policeman. Others say he became a Robin Hood-like figure who stole from the rich and gave to the poor. Still others portrayed him as a ruthless tyrant who terrorized the Greek countryside. After 200 years, it's impossible to know for sure if Christos was a hero or a villain but there is one thing that all the legends have in common. He spent a substantial portion of his life in the caves. It was a cold, drizzly day in Athens. A young panhandler named Christos was sitting in Syntagma Square in the shadows of the limestone government buildings. He had collected several small coins, almost enough to buy a cup of warm soup. When a police officer approached, Christos rolled his eyes as the man strolled over. The officer, who had a bushy mustache and a round belly that barely fit in his uniform, was always harassing him. This time, the officer stuck his wooden baton in Christos' face. He said if he ever returned to Syntagma Square, he'd never have to worry about begging ever again. Christos held his hands up innocently and retreated across the cobblestone square. So much for the generosity of people, he thought. When Christos was a young boy, his mother had taught him to believe in the goodness of others. But so far in his life, that hadn't seemed to work out. When his mother fell ill, the hospitals wouldn't treat her. When Christos was orphaned, nobody wanted to help him. So, for most of his life, Christos had been on the run, alone. All he believed in was his own tenacity. So when the policeman ordered him out of Syntagma Square. It was just a minor setback. Christos would just find a new place to survive. Today, he decided to hike north along the road toward Mount Pentelicus. He had heard of olive groves beyond there where he could survive. Not far out of Athens, Christos came across a horse-drawn cart with a broken wheel. The driver was busy screaming at his old nag and didn't notice the young vagabond. As Christos got closer, he could see a basket of bread poking out from the cart. He glanced up and down the road. Christos was so hungry, he grabbed the loaves. At that moment, the distracted driver suddenly looked over and saw Christos with the bread. He shouted and started to chase him. Christos sprinted into the nearby pine trees. After running for a while, Christos knew he must have lost the man. So he paused to catch his breath. He found that he was standing in a clearing, surrounded by steep limestone cliffs. Even more impressive, he noticed a small stone chapel embedded in the mouth of a cave. The windows were broken and the door was hanging off its hinges. Christos grinned. He knew it would be the perfect hiding place for a few hours, maybe longer. As Christos stepped into the empty chapel, he heard the trill of an old-fashioned reed flute. He froze. Maybe this place wasn't so deserted after all. As abruptly as the music started, it stopped. He relaxed for a moment, but then he saw someone. An old man in the back of the tiny sanctuary. Christos realized the man wasn't a threat. He was frail, with ribs poking through his diaphanous skin. His clothes were filthy, and it looked like he had been sleeping in a corner of the church. The man held up his hands. He said he didn't mean to hurt anyone and to let him stay in the chapel in peace. Christos told the old man he wasn't there to hurt him. He was also looking for a place to take a break. The old man gestured to the space and told him to make himself at home. At that moment, Christos wanted to sit down and devour every last crumb of his bread but he knew he could spare some. He was young and scrappy. This man, however, was probably starving. He decided to give the man half of the loaves. The old man's lip trembled as he thanked Christos. After Christos had eaten and prepared to set off, the old man called out to him. He asked if he had explored the caves yet. Christos shook his head. He didn't have time for caves. He had to find a town where he could panhandle. The old man grinned and said that the caves could help him with that. Sometimes they had old relics or treasures deep in their depths. Christos shrugged. It was worth a look. If he could find an old relic, maybe he could trade it for some soup or a bit of lamb. Christos rummaged through his pack and found the stub of a candle. He lit it and held the tiny yellow flame in front of him as he explored the tunnels. They were dark and creepy. But he had seen enough violence in his young life to not be scared. But his experience on the streets couldn't have prepared him for what he'd find in the cave. First, he discovered a stream of water running through a passageway. But somehow, it flowed uphill. Christos hadn't studied in school, but he knew there was something peculiar about that. He decided to follow it to its source. After several turns, the tunnel emerged into a well-appointed sitting room. Christo's jaw dropped. How was this possible? He suddenly felt disoriented. Even stranger, when he looked out of the large Palladian windows of the room, they looked down on Syntagma Square. He froze. He was just there earlier in the day but he didn't have time to consider the logistics of how he ended up back there. On a nearby table were treasures, emerald earrings, gold statues, silver candelabras. This must have been what the old man of the chapel was talking about. The cave was protecting him, rewarding him for giving his food to the old man. After years of misery and doubting his mother's teachings, he understood it. Generosity wasn't a one-way street. He needed to be generous, too. He finally believed. A sense of relief and salvation washed over him. He stuffed the idol and a couple of silver candlesticks into his bag and raced back through the tunnel. But the passageway didn't lead him to the main cavern. It diverted him into a plain stone room lined with wooden benches. Christos looked around in shock. This wasn't where he wanted to be. Suddenly, a girl in tattered clothes entered the room and asked Christos if he was here to help with the orphanage. She said the nuns were expecting a young man to bring the money they needed. A grin spread across Christos' face. He realized the tunnel didn't want him to keep the gold and silver. He was supposed to give them to those who needed them more, just like the bread and the old man. He smiled at her and handed her the golden statue and silver candlesticks. After that day, Christos hardly left the cavern. He lived by the rule of the caves. Only keep what he needed to survive, and give everything else to those who needed it. But after years of living alone in the cavern, Christos started to feel lonely. He'd never been a particularly social person, but the days and nights spent alone in the cavern began to weigh on him. Then one day, the cave gave him an opportunity After turning down a new tunnel, he emerged in a stone grotto at a lavish seaside villa. Christos strolled along the villa's private beach and lagoon. He had never seen a more beautiful home. The tranquility was broken when he heard a voice behind him. He prepared to run back into the grotto, but the voice belonged to a young woman. She introduced herself as Sophie. Christos learned that she was the daughter of a wealthy Greek nobleman. Even though they had vastly different childhoods, Sophie and Christos spent hours together, talking and laughing. Day after day, Christos returned to Sophie. They became friends, and eventually, they fell in love. Then one day, Sophie confessed that her father was going to marry her off to a French count. Even though she loved Christos, there was nothing she could do. He didn't have enough money to satisfy her father. Later that day, Christos wept in one of the tunnels. He didn't know what to do. The cave had given him what he needed, a friend. But now he wanted more. He wanted to marry her. But that would require riches. Suddenly, he remembered the emerald jewels in the house overlooking Syntagma Square. If he sold those, he could buy a home, fine clothes he would finally be good enough to marry Sophie. He navigated through the tunnels and finally emerged into the house. He slipped the emeralds into his pocket and raced back through the passages to return to Sophie's seaside villa. But this time, he couldn't find the right tunnel. The caves seemed to be sending him in different directions. Cristo sank in despair in the middle of the tunnel. He screamed that he was sorry, He hurled the emeralds into the dark passageway, hearing them skitter into the distance. But nothing happened. He became afraid of the cave for the first time. He needed to get out of the tunnel and find another way to Sophie. He sprinted back through the passages, looking for the exit to the chapel where he had begun. After what seemed like hours of right turns and left turns and crossroads, he finally found the sloping tunnel that he recognized from the first day. This must be it, he thought. But as he emerged from the mouth of the passage, he felt raindrops on his head. He looked around and saw that he was back in Syntagma Square. Standing in front of him was the mustachioed policeman. He heard a gunshot and suddenly had the taste of coins in his mouth. Christos looked down and saw blood running from his chest and everything went black. Though there are a number of differing legends about Christos de Nazios, they all end the same way, in tragedy. In one of the most popular tales, the bandit was carrying on an affair with Sophie de Marbois-Lebrun, the Duchess of Plaisance. Christos found a tunnel that led to her nearby villa, and he used it to visit her in secret. Eventually, one of the members of his gang became jealous of their relationship and betrayed him to the police. Christos was shot in a nearby village. Even worse, his head was chopped off and taken to Athens. There, it was displayed on a pike in Syntagma Square as a lesson to all thieves. There are some who say that the spirits of the cave protected Christos, that they fueled his success. If that was true, perhaps Christos did something to offend those spirits, a mistake that he paid for with his life. Coming up, a government experiment seals up Debellis' cave for good. Now back to the story. Of the many peculiar things that have happened at Debellis' cave, perhaps the strangest, took place in 1977. That year, a platoon of uniformed men invaded the site and declared it closed to the public. Bulldozers and explosives were brought in, likely to expand the system of tunnels beneath the mountain. To many, it smacked of a secret government project. Dr. Ferrara hugged his briefcase like a teddy bear as the military jeep skidded to a halt at a barbed wire fence. His driver, a young man with a crew cut, handed the guard some papers and gestured to the doctor. The guard eyed Dr. Ferrara, then waved them through. A few moments later, they arrived at a giant natural archway cut into a hill. There were groups of soldiers hustling to and from temporary buildings and tents around the site. As soon as Dr. Ferrara stepped down from the jeep, he was met by a man with three gold stripes on his epaulets. He introduced himself as Colonel Hank Roberts of the U.S. Department of Defense and inquired about the doctor's flight in. Dr. Ferrara remarked that it was a bumpy one. And yet, that wasn't the worst part of the last two days. He wondered if Colonel Roberts could explain why he was yanked away from his particle accelerator in Switzerland and brought to Greece on a military transport jet... Colonel Roberts grinned and told them that they'd been impressed with his work on subatomic light particles. They were hoping he might be able to help them with something they couldn't explain. This time it was Dr. Ferrara who grinned. Everything was explainable by science, he said. The Colonel shot him a cryptic smile. He was hoping he'd say that. The colonel led Dr. Ferrara past the temporary buildings through an ancient stone chapel that was now full of electronic equipment and into a gaping cavern. Dr. Ferrara craned his head around to take in the expanse. It seemed big enough to house a small sports stadium. There were soldiers coming and going from multiple tunnels that led away from the cave. Some wore hazmat suits. Dr. Ferrara asked the colonel if he should be wearing a suit. The colonel shook his head. Suits were only necessary in tunnel number three. They were going to tunnel number one. Dr. Ferrara asked if it was less dangerous there. The colonel gave him a wry smile and explained that there was a different kind of danger. The kind of suit couldn't protect you from. Soon, they were heading down a narrow stone tunnel that smelled like earth and sweat. Halfway down the passageway, Dr. Ferrara heard screaming. Up ahead, two soldiers were dragging a man in a white lab coat. The man alternated between mumbling and yelling. As the trio passed by, the man in the white coat looked at Dr. Ferrara and hollered that they shouldn't be here. It was a sacred place. People were going to die. One of the guards tightened his grip on the man's arm and told him to shut up. When they were gone, Colonel Roberts asked Dr. Ferrara if he was a man of faith. Dr. Ferrara shook his head. He grew up in the church, but in recent years, science was his only religion. Colonel Roberts nodded. That was good. There were certain side effects to their work here. Believers tend to be more susceptible. Before Dr. Ferrara could ask what kind of side effects, he gasped. At the end of the tunnel, they turned into a new cavern. He couldn't take his eyes off a cascade of tiny glowing particles that were falling from the ceiling. It looked like a shower of welding sparks, but there was no sound. Directly under the effervescent flow were massive sensors, computers, and scaffolding. But the particles were not impeded by them. In fact, they flowed right through the metal objects and passed into the stone floor below. Dr. Ferrara was speechless. In all his years of research, he had never seen anything like it. He asked the colonel if it was safe to approach it. The colonel shrugged. They didn't exactly know. Their most recent expert determined that it definitely had electromagnetic properties since it rendered most equipment useless within a few hours, but they didn't have data on living organisms. Dr. Ferrara asked if he could speak to that expert. Colonel Robert shot him a concerned look. Sadly, he already had. The expert was the man in the white coat they'd seen in the tunnel. Dr. Ferrara swallowed a lump at his throat and walked gingerly toward the equipment. He knelt down and inspected it. The light particles had already started to deteriorate the computer's CPU. Dr. Ferrara turned to Colonel Roberts and asked if there was any way he could get some lead cheating. The Colonel lit a cigarette and said they were in the U.S. Department of Defense. They could get whatever they darn well pleased. Dr. Ferrara smiled and got to work. If it was a verifiable phenomenon, it could be one of the greatest scientific discoveries in ages. Dr. Ferrara became so engrossed in the work that when he finally looked up, He realized that he had worked through lunch and probably dinner. He glanced at his wristwatch, but the hands were frozen. It must have stopped working hours ago. As he peered around the cavern, he found that he was alone. He called out for Colonel Roberts or anyone, but there was no answer. He shivered. It was creepy being down here by himself. As he climbed down from the scaffolding, he heard a strange sound coming from a tunnel on the far side of the cave. It sounded like a choir, but nothing like the ones Dr. Ferrara had heard in church as a child. This one was more guttural, like an ancient chant. Dr. Ferrara looked around. There was no one else in the cave to hear it except him, so he decided to investigate. He angled one of the utility lights down the tunnel. The beam seemed to be swallowed up by the darkness, only a few feet into the passage. Dr. Ferrara knew that there had to be a logical, scientific explanation for the music. Maybe there were soldiers in there, singing. He yelled into the tunnel, but no one responded. He shrugged to himself and headed into the passageway, a short distance down, he called out again to see if there were any workers. This time, something happened. A shadowy figure appeared. A man. Illuminated by the dim glow from the utility light, the man was naked, except for a tattered loincloth. But the doctor realized it wasn't an ordinary man. He seemed to have bird-like claws and hooves. Dr. Ferrara's stomach clenched and he started backing out of the tunnel. After a few steps, Dr. Ferrara turned and dashed for the chamber with the light particles. When he reached it, though, the equipment, scaffolding, and even the cascade of particles were gone. In their place was a pool of crystal-clear water. Around it were naked men and women, chanting and writhing like serpents. They didn't seem to notice Dr. Ferrara. At first, Dr. Ferrara wanted to run, but he found himself swept up in the excitement. Even though his heart was pounding, he felt compelled to watch. Suddenly, the crowd went silent. A red droplet fell from the stone ceiling into the center of the pool. The drop spread across the surface in a crimson sheen. A chill ran up Dr. Ferrara's spine as he realized that the water was turning to blood. Then, a figure emerged from the center of the pool. Its upper half seemed human, but its four legs were covered in coarse black fur. Its eyes seemed to be white orbs without pupils, and it had horns protruding from its head. The beast looked directly at Dr. Ferrara, though its mouth didn't move. It seemed to communicate directly inside Dr. Ferrara's head. It said his machines would never work here. This was a sacred place. It went on to say that it had been patient for too long. It would give them time to evacuate, but after that, anyone left in the cave was going to die. All at once, the scene vanished. Dr. Ferrara found himself back on the scaffolding, inspecting the computer equipment. He felt a hand on his shoulder and turned to see Colonel Roberts. Dr. Ferrara recoiled, He wanted to tell the Colonel what he had just seen, but he was unable to speak. His mouth felt like it was glued shut. He jumped down from the platform and started to run. Finally, his mouth began to churn. He yelled to the soldiers that this was a sacred place. If they didn't evacuate, they were all going to die. The Colonel sighed and spoke into a radio. They had lost another scientist. Dr. Ferrara ran back to the central cavern and up the path towards the entrance. When he reached the mouth of the cave, he turned around and took one last look at the soldiers milling about. Dr. Ferrara looked up and noticed a black cloud gathering near the roof of the cave. It was coalescing into the head with the horns that he'd seen in the cavern. In the distance, he heard chanting again, and his blood went cold. Dr. Ferrara turned and ran. In 1983, the secret government project at Develis Cave came to an abrupt halt. Not long after they were gone, visitors found a stockpile of experimental cancer drugs in a blocked-off tunnel. It's unclear exactly what the government was doing at the cave, but some speculate that it involved the electromagnetic properties of the surrounding marble. Of course, this still doesn't account for the stories of water flowing upwards, ghostly Greek choruses, and pan flutes. Those occurrences require a leap of faith, of belief, which is what Devella's cave has inspired for over 2,000 years. It has always seemed to attract believers. In ancient Greece, they were followers of Pan. After that, they were devout Christians. Then there were the government workers, who believed that the cave might give them some sort of strategic advantage. In more recent years, it has become a frequent stop for ghost hunters and brave tourists who are convinced it can bring them fame or social media followers. What will happen next at Debellis Cave is yet to be determined, but whatever form it takes will require people to suspend their doubts and skepticism and just believe. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Zoe Luisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Adam De Silva and Greg Castro, back-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Greg Polson.
2: Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new Parcast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who are far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify.